It's Friday! <laughs> How about we talk early retirement today? Let's talk with somebody who, pretty normal, didn't start off with a goal, but graduated from college and started working just a pretty normal middle-class lifestyle and figured out a way to retire at 33. That'd be a good way to go into the weekend, right? Welcome. It is Friday. Hope I didn't uh, scare you too much. <laughs> but happy Friday. Today is Friday, October the 17th, 2014. I'm in a good mood. My name is Joshua Sheets. I'm your host. This is episode 83. And today we have an interview with Justin from Root of Good, an early retiree who retired at the age of 33. He's going to tell us how he did it. I thank you for being here, and I thank you for thank you for being here. Pretty excited about today's show. Just to finish this interview, and I am recording it and releasing it right away. And it's a good one. It's a very good one. Today's interview is again with Justin, and he writes at a blog called Root of Good, and he's an early retiree. Has a very neat story that I think you're really going to benefit from. He retired at the age of 33. His wife is just a little bit older than he is, and she's about to retire. He retired about a year ago. And so he followed the early retiree pathway. But in today's show, we're going to talk a little bit about some specifics of how he did it. And in those specifics, I think they're going to be helpful because he didn't always set out with a goal of becoming an early retiree, and he just did a few little things differently. So I think this show is going to be extremely useful to you to see how there are a few differences, a few simple minor decisions that you can make that will dramatically impact the course of your financial life over time. And I think this is one of the most accessible interviews that I've done on early retirement. It is one of the most actionable, practical interviews, and it's a fun one. Justin's a great guy. He's a very smart guy, but he's very down-to-earth and able to communicate communicate clearly. I think you're really going to enjoy it. The interview is just under two hours long. The first part of the interview, we spend a lot of time talking about his story. And in the middle part, we talk about uh, uh, you know some of the things about his lifestyle of what it's actually like to be retired. I've gotten some questions on the site from people saying, you know, talk to someone who's actually retired. What is it actually like? And then in the latter part, we talk about saving money with kids. Uh, Justin and his wife have three children, ages two through nine. And so this is oftentimes unusual in the early retirement community. It seems like many people who uh, are prominent in that community either don't have kids or just have one kid or, or two kids or something, you know, aren't doing it with a young family. So I think this is also an instructive interview. And I think you're really going to enjoy it. And at the end, we talk uh, just a little bit about school um, uh, because of. of uh, it's very, very short. Uh, I want to be clear, by the way, I've been talking a lot about school and education because that's because I'm an educator. I'm a teacher. That's what I'm doing on this show. And it's a, it's a subject that's re- that I'm really passionate about. Uh, and I think it has a lot of impact on uh, personal finance in a lot of ways. So uh, don't worry. This is not the school or the education podcast. Uh, it's just that I've noticed 
constantly in working with clients that it always plays in. So we talked just a little bit about that at the end. You can stay tuned for that. So it's been a good week on the show. I didn't release a just a quick update on the show and what you can expect, and we'll get right into the interview. I didn't release an episode yesterday on Thursday, and I've been working on some big projects this week that have been taking time. And so also I've released some lengthy interviews this week, and so I want to make sure that uh, that I don't I, I, I probably target about an hour of audio a day. Uh, it usually comes out to, I think, about an hour and a half. So, frankly, that's probably more what I target. But I, since some of these have been a little bit long, I didn't release one yesterday, uh, but uh, also because I was busy. So next week, however, I will be back in the saddle with uh, me releasing some shows. I do have a bunch of really great interviews scheduled that uh, I think I'm really pleased with. Uh, with some of the variety that I've been able to bring in, especially in some of the interviews. So, and I hope you are too. I'm working hard to bring you a real variety of shows, not just talk about technical planning, not just talk about early retiree, not just, but all of these things, but doing it in ways that are actionable. So if you're interested in kind of what I am seeing as the... The, the, I guess the rhythm and the pace of the show, I want, I'm trying to create this show as something that you'll want to listen to every day. And every day find something that you can apply. So you can't apply every day heavy technical content. You can't apply every day an inspirational story. You can't apply every day a tip. So if that were all the show was, I think that would be kind of tough to listen to every day. But my hope is that by creating some of this variety, then we're going to – then hopefully I can help you have some ideas about some things that uh, you know that you can apply. And hopefully that kind of daily shift – uh, my goal is that it's interesting enough on a daily basis that you'll want to come back every day and listen to the show, and I hope that's the case. So this week on Monday, uh, again, on Monday we released the show with Ed Mills, the millionaire educator, which was an awesome show about somebody who was a teacher uh, in the government school system who was able to build out his own financial independence plan and become a millionaire as an adult over a relatively short period of time. I loved that show. I hope you did too. Then on Tuesday we interviewed Rob Roy, the author of Mortgage Free, we talked about some strategies that were not associated that we talked about the strategies that um, about building your own house and doing it using kind of a new eco uh, approach and and I love that stuff if I, someday maybe I will Wednesday I released the interview with Simon Cunningham on peer to peer lending uh, Thursday was no show and then today was was uh, is interview on early retirement uh, with Justin. And let me, to give you a, a heads up on what we've got planned for next week, I've got some interviews lined up this afternoon. I'm going to be interviewing a man named Stephen Harris, and we're going to be talking about ways to really save money on energy costs. And I am excited about this afternoon's interview, so I assume I'll be releasing that for you next week. Stephen is an amazing guy, and I've been a fan of his for a long time, and he is more knowledgeable than anyone I've ever heard on being able to cut energy costs. On Monday, I'll be interviewing Todd Tresseter from Financial Mentor. Todd is a, a writer that I really respect. Has built out an amazing website at financialmentor.com, and I think we're going to we're going to talk a lot about wealth building, and that'll be valuable. On Tuesday, I'm going to be interviewing uh, a man named Joey, who is the author of a book called Pirates of Financial Freedom, which is exciting uh, because that book is in a narrative form. He is talking about basically teaching financial plan, financial independence lessons. I haven't finished the book yet, but I've got it, and I, uh, I'm 
going to be finishing it this weekend. Then I'm also going to be interviewing uh, Tammy Strobel on Tuesday of Rowdy Kittens, and she we're going to talk about tiny house living and also going car free. And she's uh, a writer, and she and her husband live in, in a tiny house. So that's that's going to be cool. Uh, then also later in the week, I'm going to be interviewing uh, Brett from the School Sucks podcast. We're going to be talking about school and education. Brett is a teacher, and he has some really valuable input and information on school and education. Uh, I think that's really going to be fun. And then I'm also interviewing Joshua Becker from Becoming Minimalist, and we're going to talk about minimalism as a as a uh, financial strategy. And so, and then the following week, I've got a few other uh, interviews lined up as well. So that'll be good. Then also next week, I plan to release a couple of shows. I'm going to do a show on the alpha strategy, which is uh, about inflation, how to build a financial plan that beats inflation using the alpha strategy. That's a book written by a man named John Pugsley. I think you'll enjoy that. Uh, and then also we'll probably do another show on the uh, – on uh, in my education series and we'll see how I kind of release the shows as I continue working on a couple of projects. Additionally, leave me your questions. I have uh, one or two email questions that I might answer on the next Q&A show, but hopefully you guys have enjoyed the Q&A shows. I've enjoyed doing them, but I'd love to get some more call-in questions. I like the call-in questions because that allows me to profile you for the audience, and uh, so I'd love to get your call-in questions. Call me in uh, – call me in. Go to the website at RadicalPersonalFinance.com, and you will be able to hear you – you'll see the button that says send me feedback or leave voicemail or something like that. Just click that button. You can do it right from your phone, right from your computer, and you can leave a question for the call-in shows on Friday. And – then I would love to hear from you guys also as far as if you've enjoying this the, the flow, if there's something you'd like to change. Thank you for those of you who've been sending in topics. I value every one of those. I'm usually a little slow on email, but I do read every single note you send me. If you want to email me, it's joshua at radicalpersonalfinance.com, joshua at radicalpersonalfinance.com, and then I'm on Twitter at RadicalPF. And with that, we're going to go to the interview. I think that's all the announcements I needed to do. So enjoy the interview with Justin. It's a good one. So, Justin, welcome to the Radical Personal Finance Podcast. I thank you for being with us. Thanks a lot. Glad to be here. Where I'd like to start is in today's interview, I'd like to cover a couple of things. I'd like to start with your story, and then we'll get into some actual maybe tactics and techniques and tips, because I know you spent a lot of time thinking about those things and, and working on those. But I'd like to start with your story. But I want, as you tell the story, I want you to keep in mind this. Many people spend a lot of time in the world of early retirees. And so I, I've spent a lot of time in the, in the early retirement world. And that's clearly you know what your path has been. And it's easy to get into the mindset of, oh, this is simple. Everybody knows how to do it. Because when you're in the early retirement world, everyone knows what you do. But I'm reminded constantly, even last night, I had a friend over for, for dinner and we were talking afterwards. And I'm reminded constantly of how radical and how nuts... <laughs> the whole early retirement actually is. So I'd like you to tell your financial story uh, from as far back as is relevant, but give special attention to telling it in such a way that the path that you followed can be understood by somebody who hasn't been exposed to the early retirement concept. So what's your story with money? Okay. Um, that's a, a, big, a big, uh, big challenge to take on there. Um, explain it to someone who has not been indoctrinated in the early retirement financial independence world. Um, so I guess the biggest thing would be um, spending a lot less than what you make. 
Um, you got to take what you want to spend and what you make and then just take those two things and totally separate them mm-hmm. because, you know, some people make $20,000 a year, some make 100000 some make half a million dollars a year. Um, depending on where you live, that some of that may go a long ways or may not go as far as you think it would go. But the, the, biggest, the biggest thing I think to, to wrap your head around is that you don't have to spend everything that you make. And it's all a choice. You can choose to spend it all now, or you can choose to save a lot now and spend what you save over time in the future. Um, so early on, that's pretty much what I figured out was that, you know, going through college, I'm living pretty comfortably, graduated from college. Uh, the income went up a whole lot after graduating college, and the lifestyle went up some. I mean, we bought a bigger house. Um we kept the same cars we had in college, but you know, we, we ended up having three kids, uh, which drove up the expenses a little bit. But mm-hmm. we probably take a little bit nicer vacations now than we did um, back in college. How old are you now? Uh, I'm 34 now. So, uh, yeah, let me get into the ages. Um, I'm 34 now. I retired last year at age 33. Um, my wife's a couple years older than me. I won't say exactly how many, but... <laughs> Um, she, she's actually still working right now, but she may be retiring in two months or so. Um, I think that's when she's going to put in her notice, but we'll see if they make her an offer she can't refuse. But, Mm -hmm. uh, so we're uh, definitely in her thirties. She'll be retired. Um, unless she just wants to keep working for some crazy reason, but I don't think that's going to happen. Um, so yeah, and, uh, I have, yeah, three kids, uh, age two to nine, um, so we got started relatively early for people like us, I guess. Good for uh, you. Yeah. So we, so we, um, I guess, I don't know how old I was, uh, 24, I guess. Awesome. Probably 24 when we had our first kid. Awesome. Uh, right out of, right out of college almost. So, so that's, that's one thing, um, we, we didn't really, you know, some people say, well, wait until you're 35 to have kids and then you can save tons of money between age 22 or 23 up until 35. Uh, we didn't really, take that path but i didn't find kids to be that expensive personally um they're really not so, yeah i mean you I, know, we, we've seen all those estimates of the it takes a quarter million dollars to raise, raise a kid from age zero to 18 and then that doesn't even include college and you know we the house we bought we couldn't bought a much cheaper house in a neighborhood that has a yard um so i mean the house is almost a sunk cost in terms of whether we have one person living here or five people living here, it's really uh, the only thing that goes up slightly is utilities. Other than that, I mean, the property tax, insurance, um, maintenance, everything is the same on, on this type of house. Kids uh, will cost, and I want to talk about some of your tips toward the second half of the show, but kids will sure. cost exactly what you allow them to cost. Uh, and people often forget about the fact that there are kids all over the world, and no matter the amount of income that, that uh, people have, there are children, and it really doesn't cost that much to support kids. Now, there are certainly some families who are not able to support their kids, and there are certainly, you know, I've spent a lot of time in some places where there are a lot of kids on the streets, but it really doesn't cost that much to have a kid. But in the U.S. and in the Western co- contexts, they cost as much as you let them cost, and that can be far more than $300,000 over the course of a lifetime, or it can be far less, and that's entirely up to the parent. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So you at what? So did you? Were you always interested in money? Did you have somebody who mentored you, who who 
kind of taught you a path? Did you figure it out yourself? What was your path? Um, I mean, I've always been pretty good with money and always, I guess I've always saved some of what I made. And I started working, I don't know, age 12 or 13, probably with a paper route as mm-hmm. cliche as that is, but it paid very, very poorly. And I quit it soon after I started. But, um, I think I made $30 a month or something. Just, this was back in 1993 or so probably, mm-hmm. uh, which is not a lot of money even back then. But, um, so anyway, I always save a lot of my money. Um, Did your parents you know, teach that to you? Yeah, I mean, I guess you kind of, I guess I kind of absorbed it through osmosis. Um, you know, we we were comfortable enough growing up. Um, you know, we had a stable house and, and cars that mostly ran most of the time, and um, we took the occasional vacation that was pretty modest usually. But mm-hmm. uh, so I mean, yeah, just I think frugality was just the the background experience growing up. Um, in general. Um, so, and we, we didn't grow up in a high cost of living area and it wasn't a really, it wasn't like an exclusive gated community. So right. the, 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 my peers around me were just normal in general. Um, not, not any, I, I didn't see a lot of, of, uh, luxury spending and, and high class lifestyle growing up. So, I mean, I, I didn't grow up in the hood or anything, but, um, I actually grew up in Cary, North Carolina. So if anybody familiar with Cary, it's kind of a, considered to be one of the luxury areas in uh near Raleigh North Carolina but but I grew up I say I grew up on the rough side of Cary which is not rough at all but <laughs> so traditional high school traditional college path and but did you work your way through college how did you pay for college yeah um I went through yeah uh public education K through 12 uh, I took a few college classes and lots of AP classes in high school so I got I got about a 2 year head start on college um which financially helped immensely. Um, the AP tests were, I think they're like $300 for five or six AP tests. I can't remember what they were exactly, but it was very cheap compared to paying full freight at, at a university. Mm-hmm. So anyway, so I entered with roughly two years of, uh, um, classes under my belt. Um, and it took three years to graduate and I worked my way through mostly, I, I got some student loans. Um, but, but I always found opportunities to make pretty good money. Um, and, and not, so I did, I did engineering, uh, well, engineering in Spanish, but engineering was the moneymaker degree. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so I ended up doing research assistantships, got a, a, a grant one year for, for a semester to do some research. Um, I also worked at the radio station as a disc jockey and, uh, and a production manager doing, um, sort of doing what you're, you're doing here on the podcast, um, um, at a soundboard. I don't know if you have a soundboard, but I do. Yeah. Okay. So we so we had a soundboard there, and I'd produce advertisements and and take care of some of the spots on the on the uh, radio station, and and it paid it paid pretty well for the effort required. And, and the um, I, I volunteered for a lot of um, a lot of um, broadcasting baseball games and women's basketball games. The, the spots that nobody wanted, but they I think they paid thirty dollars for like two hours worth of work, and you only have to press three buttons, right? And, and say the station name once. So it was. You know, about two or three minutes worth of work, and then two hours worth of homework studying for thirty bucks. I mean, you know, decent amount of money back in around two thousand. Um, so I did that, and uh, did did some summer programs that paid pretty well, gave gave a decent stipend. Um, but I went to a public university, um, got an engineering degree that that ended up leading to a um, relatively well paid career. Uh, nothing spectacular, but. When, uh, what? How old were you when you graduated college? 
Um, I graduated uh, undergrad. I graduated. I think I was twenty. Okay. Twenty. Yeah. And I ended up going to law school after that. Um, but I finished law school. Ended up getting my law license, but I never practiced law. So. So you uh, passed the bar, and then just uh, non. But you're not practicing. Yeah. Actually, I, interesting story. I, I I waited six years after graduation to take the bar exam because I I never really wanted to practice law. I figured that out unfortunately too late into law school but i went ahead and finished law school uh but i took the bar exam during the, the great recession because that was my plan b was to hang up a shingle and do traffic tickets and small claims court and stuff like that if i if engineering fell through so the the law license was a kind of a an afterthought and a, and a plan b to maybe stave off uh, starvation a while longer if the world really went crazy and i couldn't find anything else to do because we we all know the last people or last things on earth in a disaster will be cockroaches and lawyers. So, uh, that's a that's a really interesting plan B. I, I've had a number of uh, early retiree like people who are working towards retirement contact me and ask about you know sources of income because I think one of the things that people should be thinking about as they're engineering their financial plans is backup plans and always having margins of safety and everything. And one great margin of safety is if you can design a source of income that's not tied necessarily specifically to your having to work a traditional 40-hour job. And most people, I think, wouldn't mind if they have some control and autonomy and they have interesting work, most people wouldn't mind that. So whether that's doing, you know, part-time tax preparation during the busy tax season, if someone built up a practice like that or financial planning, I've often thought of law, however, as being one of those options is that I could happily, I think I, I could, I could very happily be uh, a trust and estate attorney and I could very happily do that type of work and enjoy myself. And that type of work, I could set it up with an online, uh, an online, presence. I could do just simple, I could do simple or complex planning for clients all around the country, uh, all around the U.S. uh, from anywhere in the world. And that could be a very kind of part-time scenario where you're just working with clients and make just just some money. It's not nearly going to be as profitable, but what a neat neat plan B for you. Yeah. And and actually, just to set the record straight, that that was my Plan B to do full time work back then around 08 or 09. Um, today, I, I don't actually. I'm actually an inactive member of the bar, so I can't mm-hmm. practice law right now. Um, but but yeah, I and mean, that's one thing I, I you know I could do if I ever really absolutely run out of money and can't. No one will hire me, and my engineering skills are stale. And and uh, I could reactivate my law license, sure. figure out how to do yeah, trusted estates, basic wills. Um, you know, get the right templates and and or just do traffic tickets and do on call or um, court appointed work for uh, for the court, public defenders or whatever. Sure. Um, you know, all you, all it takes for that is a law license. You don't have to have a lot of skills, and you can kind of figure it out as you go along. Yeah. Uh, that's that's oversimplifying it, but it's it's not you know it's not a, a capital murder defense or a right. a, a com- complex merger and acquisition. It's it's relatively straightforward. Right. But, uh, Do you know what your net worth was when you graduated from college, or are you willing to share it? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm willing to share it. Yeah, I, I it was. Don't quote me on it, but um, probably let's see. We owned a condo at the time when I graduated from uh, undergrad or law school. Were you saying undergrad? Oh, okay. Yeah, it was. And, it was, and what I'm trying to hone into, uh, which feel free to take take this and run, is I'm trying to give the path as far as did you know 
how much money did you have? When did you have it? Because when you say retire at 33, that is really startling to most people, especially when you say, you know, I took out some student loans in college and I wasn't given a lot of money, which is kind of what you're saying. So I'd love you to trace the path as best, best you can between what your earnings were, what your net worth was. And it's okay if it's rough, but just to illustrate what you actually did to help somebody who's new to the early retirement concepts to understand. Yeah, um, it, it, net worth probably when I graduated, I didn't track it then. I didn't start tracking it until a few months after I started working in 2004. Um, so I, this is just off the cuff. But probably when I graduated college, it may have been like $10,000, uh, may, maybe around that. Uh, it's hard to say. I, I don't know how many loans I had back then compared to what I had in the bank. But it was it was pretty low. Um, and it may even be negative. I don't, I don't know when I graduated undergrad. Um, similar for your wife as well. Yeah, hers was probably probably even lower. Um, we 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 actually started dating back in college, so we we sort of we didn't merge finances at that point back in undergrad, but we've been together, um, living together since since then. So, um, yeah, I mean, we basically we had almost nothing back in when we graduated college, um, but that's probably a lot better than a lot of graduates that have absolutely nothing and credit card debt and. And lots of student loans, and I mean, we, I at least had an income source of a decent job, off and on here and there, wherever I wanted to, you know, go work. Um, and then, and then we we bought a condo when I, I went to law school at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. So we bought a condo up there. Um, Did you go to law school immediately out of out of engineering school? Yeah, straight out. Yeah, okay. I, I worked the summer in between at a at a research position um, in Raleigh, but but yeah, straight. So and that and that paid pretty well too. And and did you uh, borrow money for law school? Yes. Okay. So then after law school, you just you got a corporate job, an engineering job. Yeah. So after law school, I, I graduated. I had some I had some internships that paid. They either volunteer or some of them paid really well. But um, so I made some money in the summers there. But then graduated law school and then found a good um, private engineering job as a consultant. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And any idea, big money, six figures, half six figures, willing to share? Half six, half of six figures, um, slightly less than half of six figures. Yeah, just just for income. I mean, I don't mind disclosing it. Um, we both started out, I think I was at 48000 a year back in 2004, and I ended up at 69000 a year um, last year in 2013. Um, so we never, I mean, we made decent money. Um, I don't know if that how that compares to other my other peers, but I certainly know a lot of other people my age that are making more than that in engineering, um, especially non civil engineering people right. that were electrical engineering, computer science, computer engineering, you know that kind of stuff, making a lot more money. Um, my wife roughly the same uh, income trajectory. I think she started a little bit lower, ended up slightly higher than that. Um, so it, plus benefits, but I mean that that was that was pretty much our. Our income capped out at um, roughly one hundred fifty thousand dollars in twenty thirteen, the, la- the last year that I, I worked full time. So, so here's uh, the here's the striking thing about it, which is why I pressed you for those numbers. Is that these are your in- the income you, you said forty five thousand. When I graduated from school, I had a corporate. I got a corporate job. I started making forty, I think it was, and then it was something like forty five. Um, so it's not that difficult if you are reasonably intelligent in, and if you know if you punch the punch the box on the college degree, it's not that tough to get a middle level corporate job making forty grand. Uh, but the key, 
but the key is that you did something very different with your forty five grand than than I did because I'm almost thirty and I'm not financially independent and you're thirty three and you are because uh, I saved ten percent of my income. Do you know how much of your income you saved? Yeah, starting out, we probably saved around half once we both had uh, full time jobs. My wife took a year off or so with, for the first kid. We're out of um, law school, but after that, she got a job. Um, yeah, and it was about like what you're saying. She's in she was in finance, and it started around forty thousand or so back then. Um, and she's worked her way up uh, to to increase that. But um, so we yeah we started out and saving probably about half of our income. Um, and a lot of that comes from the tax savings from deferring lots of income as well. Mm-hmm. But um, and then over the years, it probably increased to maybe seventy or seventy five percent. Um, the last year or so. I mean, we were maxing out. We we maxed out 401ks and IRAs um, pretty much every year that we've worked. Um, and then actually when I was, I, I ended up with the state for the last few years of my career. And so we had a 457 account that I also maxed out and they took out a pension, 6% for a pension. So we were, I don't know how much we we're deferring income, probably close to $60,000 totally tax-free. Mm-hmm. Oh, and health savings account. So, I mean, you add all that up, and we're putting in maybe sixty or sixty-five thousand, maybe um, completely tax-free. And so, the tax we, we paid almost no tax. I mean, I, our our last uh, we can put a link to this uh, on the podcast, but I think in twenty thirteen we paid one hundred and fifty dollars in tax on one hundred fifty thousand dollars income, which sounds ridiculous, but that's part <laughs> of the way we got to where we were. Is we paid almost no tax. Love that. Well done, by the way. That's, uh, that's excellent planning. I'm proud of you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what were the things that you did differently that you noticed than some of your buddies who also went to the same school? You know, you're just kind of social circle. What did you do differently than them? Because the, I have done a lot of financial planning for 33-year-old uh, couples who are making mid, mid-level incomes and who are just trying to figure out how to save, you know, Five or ten percent of their income. What did you do differently than what your friends did? Um, probably the biggest thing is I, I think I've always thought about things in terms of long term net worth growth, um, and and kind of when I frame decision, big decisions in life of, of how will this how will this make me wealthier in ten years from now? Mm-hmm. Uh, from, from you know, should I get an MBA? Should I buy a new car? Should I should I upgrade my house? Should I uh, put my kids in private school or should I, you know, to a private preschool or something like that, or, or should I have kids at all? That, that sort of thing. Most of that stuff you can model out pretty well financially and, and figure out. And that maybe that's the weird part is that I actually modeled things and figured things out and did the math on it. And, you know, mo- most things are quantifiable to some extent. Um, so you can figure out the impact of, you know, if you buy a house that's twice the cost and well, there's gonna be twice as many expenses with it. Um, and not just the mortgage, but taxes, insurance, maintenance. Um, if you live in a nicer neighborhood, you're going to have um, fancier Joneses to keep up with. Um, so there, there's the lifestyle inflation costs associated with that. So probably the weird thing is we we stuck in our starter home that we didn't know it was going to be a permanent home when we bought it, but it ended up being our permanent home, I, I guess. Um, we're here 10 years later, so we're still here. Um, so we, we didn't move houses a lot. Um, and every time you move a house, there's transaction costs, real estate commissions, fixing it up, decorating, uh, that sort of thing. Um, 
cars, the same thing. We actually still drive our 14-year-old cars that we bought brand new in college uh, with loans at the time. Mm-hmm. So, so we're still driving the same reliable Hondas that we bought way back then. Uh, they don't look as pretty as they did back then, but they, they still get us where we need to go. Uh, I think the I think the biggest part is just not really inflating the lifestyle a whole lot above um, where we where we were soon after college. Um, there's probably a jump after we graduate from college because you know there's more money available and, and it's reliable source of income and that sort of thing. But um, I, you know, and it's and it's hard to say. I, I guess I, I see the small things like some friends would buy more electronics quicker. So they would sort of be on the, the early edge of the technology booms, and they would buy the HDTV back when it was thousands of dollars for a TV. And we waited a few years, and it was like $500 for a, a big flat-screen TV. Um, the same thing with computers. You know, I, I would buy the cheap ones, and they might buy the, the fancy, expensive ones. And um, So it, it's probably just a lot of small things, uh, paying attention to a lot of the details. Um, and then the, the, the biggest the, – I'm sure that the biggest impact was – um, housing, cars, and and taxes. Um, saving money on those three things: housing, cars, and taxes. It's. I'll share a little bit of kind of what I learned. I'm glad you shared that because that's that's kind of what I was expecting. We've never talked, and I've I have uh, flipped through your blog, but I haven't read your whole archive, so I don't feel like I you know I know your entire story. But I, the reason I'm glad I'm glad that you that you share that is because. People often think that they have to do something super extreme and something super hardcore in order to be able to in order to be able to build financial independence. And so, you know, I love uh, Jacob Lund Fisker. I mean, I think he's a neat guy, but man, is he intimidating to some people? And for many people in an average Western society, uh, you know, the idea of him saying, I live in, in California on 7000 bucks a year, which is which is only for one. Um, so, you know, plus plus his wife, seven or, or ten or however much. That is really intimidating for many people. But I've learned that it doesn't have to be like you don't you don't have to be intimidated. You just got to do a few things right. And the things I have observed is is it's interesting that there's a high. It seems as though there is a higher correlation between engineers and the wealthy than there than there should be based upon the the number of engineers in society. So uh, Tom Stanley talks about that in his research on professions, and many engineers have a higher propensity to accumulate wealth than some other professions, even though their earnings are not necessarily extremely high on a on a large basis. But as I'll tell you how I learned this, and, and I want to tie it to the lessons that you may not have. I mean, you may, may be more unconscious than conscious, is I started doing financial planning for people. When I'm doing financial planning, I started running a, an analysis for them where I showed them what their earning would be or that what their actual, their total income would be. So if I were sitting with you and your wife at 27 years old, I would take, okay, you're earning $60,000 and I would, I would uh, project that forward from let's just say 25 to 65 so I can do the math. So there'd be 40 years of income and then I would inflate that income at just a 3% inflation for cost of living. And the remarkable thing is I, was al- I would always do that and compare that to the balance sheet. So I would illustrate to my clients their balance sheet. Here's, here are the assets that you have, the financial assets. Here are the financial liabilities that you have. Now here's your income. And at any normal middle-class income, you wind up with a total income of millions of dollars. 
And you look at this balance sheet, and usually someone's stressed out by I've got $13,000 of credit card debt, and I owe $17,000 on my car, and I've got a $182,000 mortgage. But when compared to the $3 million income, you look at it and you say, this shouldn't be that big a deal. It really shouldn't be that big a deal to take $3 million bucks and pay off the car, pay off the credit cards, pay off the house, and save a million or two, million or two bucks with, with investment growth. But then I would do financial planning for a lot of 50, 50 and 55-year-old couples, and I'd find they're still in the same situation. And I finally figured out – it sounds stupid to say, but it took me a long time to figure out – that the key is that people don't stop. They always keep their balance sheet right about how it is. And the average person – and most people listening to the show are not going to be average – but the average person in, in a Western society is continually upgrading. So instead of buying a new car and financing it because you don't have the money, which would be fine if you just did it one time, you finance a new car and then you do it every four or five years. And instead of buying a house and putting a mortgage on it because you don't have the money, which would be fine if you did it once or twice, many people every – what was it the realtors say? Five to seven years upgrade. And every time you upgrade, there are all of the costs of the transaction. So you have sales commissions. You have, um, you have just all the fees and the costs of the transaction. Then you have all of the costs associated with the move which can be several thousand dollars. Then you have all of the costs associated with setting up the new house the way that you want it to be, the new furniture, the new drapes, all of the new stuff. And there's all these little embedded costs all along the way. And if we could just think a little bit more in advance and make an intelligent choice and, like you said, buy a brand new Honda that's going to last for 14 years and may very well last for another 10 and buy a house that's going to work for a long period of time and then just stick with it, then what can happen is that although it's not so dramatic in the beginning as far as the expense difference, over time, just by stay, keeping those expenses constant and then the income growing, that leads to the wealth building. So it's, it's, it's fairly simple, but very few people recognize as far as why. You can't be constantly upgrading because if you're constantly upgrading, then you're going to wind up uh, – you're going to wind up constantly increasing costs and you're not able to save money. Yeah, that's. I don't know that we consciously realized that early on, mm-hmm. uh, but I mean, we were you know we were frugal minded back way back when, and and I figured when I bought a new car, I mean it would it should be able to last for ten maybe twenty years. Right. Uh, I, I didn't think about where I'd I'd be sitting here in my chair today, fourteen years later, still driving it necessarily, but mm-hmm. I mean that you know it it could last that long potentially. Um, and the same with the house. We just said, well, okay, it's a good deal on a house. Um, it's it, We bought it at an auction from the city. It, it, it didn't need too much work, but, you know, a tiny bit of stuff we put into it. Um, but, you know, it made sense at the time, and, and we, we it was in a decent location. And But but I think realizing those those friction costs of moving house somewhere else, um, and, and even to a different city, um, sometimes people focus so much on the income side of, well, I could – I can move across the country and make, you know, get a 20% pay increase, but the cost of doing that and the cost of flying back home a few times a year if you want to visit family or friends and the, the cost of packing up and, and a realtor's commission and, and the moving company, I mean, unless your company picks it up, some of those costs will be offset, but, uh, but, but all those costs sort of, they, they add up and, and it's, it's not as, it's not as simple as just saying I can get a 20% pay increase. The, the cost of living may be, 25% more and so you're actually saving at a lower rate or after taxes you may be making maybe losing money by moving somewhere um, 
and you know maybe it's worth it for your career if you can take a huge jump forward in your career um, by moving. But yeah, we we sort of yeah we sort of just stayed in one place and focused on taking getting as much money as possible into our investment accounts um, and letting it grow um, free of taxes. Uh, most of our investments are tax deferred, um, and and the goal was you know. We know we know that's money that's ours that's sitting in our account, and to to try to move to a new house, even here in town, um, that's money that's going to disappear from our from our savings. And right. We're not going to be able to keep saving. We're going to have a bigger down payment. Um, just all those costs they they add up, and and it's you know we would, might be slightly happier in a new house temporarily. Um, but we would get used to it so quickly. The same, the same thing with luxury cars. Um, I, I mean, I don't even like driving that much. Mm-hmm. Um, I do it because I want to go somewhere, not because I enjoy driving in a in a fancy car. Um, I, I'd rather just walk if I could do it. But right. um, yeah, it's it, it's it's weird how you end up where you do. But a, a lot of it comes down to just uh, focusing on those small costs and the big costs. It really is. It's it's the small costs and it's the big costs. And I forgot to mention the taxes. And that is a big deal for you. And I'll give you a number. I was trying to find just now. I wasn't able to pull it up. I was trying to pull up the uh, IRS tax table and just see what the tax table would be on $150,000 of income, ignoring some of the exemptions. But uh, uh, if you look at it and you say, and here's the other key, is that in order to take advantage of tax deferral, you have to be able to defer the income and not need it to spend. Right. So if you say if and I just I'll just use this statistic because I just googled it and found it. And let's it says that the average income on 150 the average tax rate on 150 thousand dollars is 23 percent. So I don't know if that's true or not. Let's just say that let's just for the sake of the example uh, say it because I wasn't able to pull up the tax table in time. But 23 percent of 150 thousand dollars is 34 thousand five hundred dollars. By being able to live on the median wage of thirty or thirty to forty thousand dollars with one with you, with three children, you can wipe out. If you can live on the median wage, you can wipe out all of your tax bill, as you said, with hundred all of your income tax bill with one hundred fifty thousand dollars income of paying one hundred fifty dollars of taxes. That's thirty four thousand five hundred dollars of savings right off of your budget. But people don't see that. And this is why I hammer so hard on people is do your income statement and include the gross income. So people don't do that. They keep a budget that says, here's what my after-tax income is, but they miss the almost $3,000 a month that they're spending on taxes because of their high-consumption lifestyle. So it all works together. Cutting out taxes allows you to save an extra $34,500 per year on, uh, on tax savings, then by not upgrading the house, then by not upgrading the cars, and you can live a fairly normal-looking lifestyle just by not doing those things. And over time, you do it, do it for a few years, and you can, you can build wealth. But somehow we don't, we don't grasp that formula. Yeah, and, that, and it's funny that that $34,500 figure, that's, that's roughly about what our lifestyle costs now. So it's interesting to think of it that way of we were saving enough on taxes to essentially fund. Every year that we saved on taxes was an extra year of expenses that we were funding. But then even beyond that, we're, we're, that income is being is growing tax-free, and so it's actually invested. And, and so after 10 years or so, it's going to double. And so it's actually two years of living expenses just from 
being smart on taxes for for one year. So it's that's a, a pretty yeah. I, I don't know if it was thirty four thousand dollars, but it'd be interesting to find out exactly what it would have been if we if we did not defer all the income and and uh, yeah, because it was yeah. And, I, and that's what I always thought about is you know even making small changes like that the the first thousand dollars if you put in a thousand dollars into a four and K and you're in the say combined state and federal I'm in a state with income taxes so mm-hmm. um you know if your combined state and federal income tax bracket is say thirty two percent um you put in a thousand dollars well it doesn't cost you a thousand dollars it costs you six hundred and eighty dollars and the other three hundred twenty dollars, that's given to you by the by savings on taxes. So you know people think, well, I can't afford a thousand dollars, but you only have to be able to afford six hundred eighty dollars, and that's that's like fifty bucks a month. And so it's so it's a very very tiny amount of money, but you get to actually save every dollar that you put in that, that it takes out your paycheck. You're getting half that much back again in, in terms of a tax break, and right. so. It's, it's just, a, I mean, for me, I could, I could see that mathematically like, oh, okay, well, you know, if I'm putting in $10,000, I'm saving $3,200. If I put in $20,000, I'm saving $6,400. Um, it, it's a huge amount of money, you know. Right, uh, right. And, and you're just pointing out, I mean, all we're doing here with it, without going on to a long tax conversation, but income taxes, the whole concept of income taxes, in my opinion, it's asinine. It's utterly asinine. Because what happens is that all of the people who are mildly intelligent, who are the most productive people, figure out a way to avoid them. And the people who are not generally very productive pay them all. And it's a completely asinine system. And there's always a way to exploit any system that's set up on a political basis. And this is a really good one, which is it's entirely straightforward. It's easy to do. uh, And it can result in some major, uh, major advantages. So... Uh, I think it's awesome that I mean I love that you did did your post on the hundred fifty thousand dollars and hundred fifty dollars of income and I will make sure to link to that in the show notes. Question for you as far as your distribution strategy. So here would be what I would say uh, as a skeptic. I would say, okay, listen, Justin, this all sounds great, but come on, man, you're thirty three years old. How on earth do you know you have enough money to live on? What makes you so what makes you so sure that you are retired? You know, that's ridiculous. How could you be retired at thirty three? How do you know you're not gonna run out of money? Um I would say, hey, you got a good point. I don't know. Uh and that's that's kind of a, a plan C or a plan D is I may have to go back to work, but so what? Mm-hmm. I mean I'm gonna have five, ten years off from not working. And I may have to go back to work, but I don't have to make a ton of money. I mean, we only spend thirty-two thousand dollars a year. That's that's um, a little bit above minimum wage, but it's it's not a you know I I, could, I don't have to go back to engineering. I could do something else. But um, but in terms of in terms of why do I think it's very 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 likely that we will have enough? Um, we could always reduce spending. Um, you know, we have five or six thousand dollars in the budget for travel. Uh, that's pure luxury. Um, there's other areas we can cut back on or we could defer spending, like big improvements to the house. Um, there's part-time jobs. There's, there's small freelance income online. There's, there's my being an attorney and going doing traffic tickets, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. There's, there's, there's small, relatively easy ways to not work a whole lot and still make some money. Um, so so the, the, those are sort of um, plan B, plan C, plan D things, um, reducing expenses, pulling in some side income. And then if it really, really fails, ultimately – 
um, or or as the portfolio balances get so low that I'm afraid of running out of money, I might have to go back to work full time. But those are those are sort of Plan B and beyond. Um, in terms of Plan A, um, so we have a little bit over a million dollars. Um, probably, well, a few weeks ago it was probably closer to. Um, <laughs> 1.3 ish million uh, in, in the in the investment portfolio. Um, today is probably closer to 1.2 million. Uh, so we've lost a little bit, around 100,000 dollars in the last few weeks. But you haven't uh, lost any money. The the values reflected for what people are willing to pay you today for the shares of the companies that you own, they're willing to pay you 100,000 dollars less. But you haven't lost any money yet. Sorry, I, <laughs> that one's a big one for me. So I have to correct that. Yeah, it's. I mean, and, that, and that's absolutely true. You know, if you look at Am I going to be selling any of the stuff that I've lost money on on paper? No, I'm, I'm not selling it tomorrow. I probably will not sell it within the next year because we have more than a year's worth of uh, cash in our savings account. Mm-hmm. I might actually invest some of the cash that we have sitting around just because values have gone down. But but the 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 the, the bigger point is is we're only spending. So if you look at our spending, thirty two thousand per year, um, and I, we can put a link for that too um, down below the, this podcast. Um, the, the full budget that we have. Mm-hmm. So 32000 per year, um, that's around 3% from a million dollars, um, 3.2% of a million dollars. So our portfolio could actually drop in value by another $200,000 or so, and we would still be spending around 3.2% of, of what's left. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you look at the, the 32000 divided by the $1.2 million we have today, um, I, I don't know, it's probably... Well, I can do it really quickly. That's two point six seven percent. So we have a, a withdrawal rate below three percent right now. Um, that that's slightly above our dividend yield on the portfolio. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in terms of historical success rates, uh, there's there's the four percent rule that says you can take four percent of your portfolio each year and increase it for inflation each year. Mm-hmm. And have a ninety-five percent chance of having your money last for thirty years, um, and in thirty years I'll be sixty sixty-four. Um, Social Security, if it still exists in today's format and, and the payments the same, I'll be eligible for Social Security by then. So it'll be a little bit less than thirty-two thousand per year for the two of us. But um, I, re- I really, I mean, if I if I can last thirty years. Social Security will kick in and, and cover most of our core expenses, and it'll be a, a very bare bones retirement, you know, when we're sixty something. If our portfolio is exhausted after thirty years, and that's with the four percent spending rule, mm-hmm. we're spending a little bit less than three percent, um, but we'll just say three percent. So each year we're actually leaving an extra percent on the table, probably. Um, and so over the long term, if stocks grow at say seven or eight percent. And we're only spending three percent each year. Our portfolio will grow on average. I mean, there's going to be ups and downs, obviously, but but we're not even spending the full amount that we probably could spend from our portfolio. Um, so, so I, in other words, I, I don't think I think the chance of us running out of money is pretty small. Um, even I, I'll, put the, I'll put the odds of me getting bored and going back to work because I'm bored. As a higher probability than than us running out of money, um, <laughs> I agree. And then and the, even if it's not even if it's not getting bored and going back to your traditional job, I would say that the odds of you're finding some kind of project doing something that interests you that's going to change the world in some remarkable way 
and then putting you know your engineering skills and your legal skills to use and then figuring out how to make some money on it purely as enjoyable is going to happen to you. <laughs> Um, but one one quick thing on the the numbers. Even if you, with the amount of money that you have saved, even if you sold all of your investments today and you completely cashed out and you put everything into currency sitting in your house, then at one point two million dollars divided by thirty two thousand four hundred dollars per year, you have thirty seven years thirty seven point zero four years of income sitting that would be able to sit there in currency. So even if you didn't like that, that's I, I like to show people that one now that doesn't that doesn't count for inflation. But a lot of times people are so uncomfortable with the withdrawal rates that if you just think about that, you've got 37 years of income sitting there. You've got plenty of time to figure something else out. Yeah, that's that's kind of the way I think about it um, is, you know, people are like, well, aren't you worried? I'm like, well, I'm, I'm worried like 20 years from now. I'm worried, but not like tomorrow. I mean, I I can I could fire off. If I if I put out one resume a day for the next twenty years, that would be seven <laughs> seven thousand resumes I could send out between now and twenty years from now. Right. I, I mean, just somebody's going to just like my name or something, or like where I went to school, or they're, they're just going to hire me because they can't find anybody else, or you know, that, that to me it's like, well, I'll find I'll find a way to do to make money somehow doing something. Uh, sometime between now and twenty years from now, right, right, and, and yeah, and I love the I love the withdrawal rates as being a useful tool for people, but there are risks associated with that. The cool thing is that it, when you have money and you have capital, you you can figure out what's an intelligent way to deploy it, and that intelligent way may be building a cottage behind your house that you can uh, that you can you know put airbnb people in it may be starting a, a bed and breakfast in the, you know in the country it i mean there's a it may be starting a there are a gazillion types of things you can do once you have the capital though you have the time to build whatever it is that you want to do and you always need to be looking at what's the wisest way to invest it and that may not just be pulling mutual fund money uh, off of on a safe withdrawal rate strategy or it might be just depends on what you want yeah, and just to touch on that in terms of where I'm at, um, mine's mostly that latter. The the I really only have those investments in, in mutual index funds, mutual funds, um, and that's what I'm planning on relying on. Um, it, but like you're saying, I mean, it would it would not be that hard to take some of that money and put it into a capital asset that has a higher rate of return. With more risk and more uh, labor required of me, like a like a piece of rental real estate, you know, I could I could take ten percent of my portfolio, sell it, and then go buy a house somewhere in my neighborhood, uh, one hundred and twenty, one hundred thirty, one hundred forty thousand dollars, and then rent it out for twelve hundred dollars a month, and maybe net after vacancies and paying insurance and maintenance fees and. Um, you know, I could probably net eight or nine hundred dollars a month, roughly, um, from that, which is say, I don't know, ten thousand dollars a year or so, mm-hmm. net, net. Right. It's, so, so it wouldn't, you know, it, it'd be more risk. Obviously, it'd be more work for me, uh, slightly having to manage a, a rental property. Um, but that that's one of those things that, if if it ever gets really, really, really tough. I mean, there are ways for me to make more money and, and get higher returns with more risk. Maybe more risk. I don't know. Maybe not. But um, it, I, I'm not. I'm not stuck with this current strategy. I mean, it's something I can reevaluate 
every day, every year. Uh, is it working for me or not? Um, but but I think you highlight a good point is that once you have that capital sitting there, um, I mean, I can go out and buy 10 hot dog carts and hire 10 high school students to run 10 hot dog carts tomorrow and and deploy them around the city and, and maybe make some money off of that. I, I don't know. I mean, that, that's just off the cuff. But but there, when you when you have money sitting in the bank, you have that ability to do to start little ventures here and there if you want to um, to make more money. Um, and, it's, and you're not you're not really stuck with strictly sticking to index funds and and bonds and stocks and and that sort of thing. I mean, there's there's tons of different investments out there. I just I haven't personally gone into any of those just because I'm lazy, I guess, and, and just for right now, just want to have some, some, some freedom to just do whatever and not have to worry about anything else right now. I had three former clients, all of whom had interesting investments, all of which funded their entire lifestyle uh, at a level greater than what you need to spend money on them. One, one of them owned a cell phone tower and they had it rented out. I think it was like to Verizon or something like that. And just the rent from the one primary customer funded their entire lifestyle. One of them owned a family dollar store. Like out in the country, basically, they'd built a built a store and they had it on a lease to a, a dollar store. I don't remember if it was family dollar, dollar general, one of those types of stores. And I don't remember the term. It was like about a 15-year lease. And that funded their entire lifestyle. And the third one owned a campground in the south where you are. I think it was uh, Tennessee maybe. And just the campground, which was a seasonal campground, funded their entire lifestyle. So yeah, it can be – and all of them were – the investment cost was less than a million bucks. Yeah. I mean it, it, it's, it's crazy to think what you, what you could do with a million bucks or 1.2, 1.3 million um, to definitely get a lot more returns. And I guess the, for me, the, the, the risk that I would see is that, that geographic concentration. Of, right, right. You know, I've got a cell phone tower. And so if, if, you know, bam, all of a sudden you have to have a cell phone tower that's 10 feet higher or the FCC shuts it down or, you know, new technologies out there, why, why max phi something or other that makes yep. the ranges 20 miles and all of a sudden you need a cell phone tower or one in each city. And I mean, that, that, that's the, those disruptive things of or campgrounds i mean maybe it floods or that area the, the highway gets shut off or the national park closes or they just say they start drilling for oil in it so it's not recreational those those are the sort of things where like by having my money split up in thousands of different companies all over through index funds i'm relatively diversified to the point of not having to worry too much about you know a particular city or area or country or technology or industry um, going under, um, so that's that's sort of the I'm, I'm accepting a lower return in exchange for diversification of risk. Hundred percent agreed. In fact, the client had the cell phone tower. The tenant, dis- the primary tenant, disappeared, and they had to scramble to fix that. Uh, and th- there are unique risks in all of those. Yeah. Good point. Um, question: People have a lot of interest in hearing how when people actually retire how they spend their time and what they do and i'm interested you've been you quit your job what a year ago how do you spend your time and what's it actually what's life actually like now um so i like to think of it in terms of right now i'm probably 50 percent stay-at-home dad 50 percent um lazy bum doing whatever, whatever i want to do um and and I, I think that'll I think that'll change over time just as my kids get older and they're less time intensive. Um, 
the youngest one's two, and I just heard him run over here and rattle on the door. Uh, my, my wife's actually home today too, just hanging out. Um, but so, so just on a daily basis, probably a few hours a day at least, I'm spending with the kiddo, um, taking the other kids to school, walking up to school and back, um, doing play dates, that sort of thing. Um, the the rest of the time, um, today might be a good example. We're going to go out. We're, we're on a venture to find some good fresh fish and fish eggs to make sushi at home. Fun. Um, we we make sushi all the time, but don't really have a great source of fish around here. So we're we're, we're going to go out on a little venture um, to try to find that. So that's going to take up a little bit of time, and then making the actual sushi. So we we have more time to do those kind of things, like the you know if we were at work, it'd be stop by the sushi place, get takeout, come home, eat it. Um, this way we're going to be able to create, hopefully create a source of awesome, fresh, um, fish for, for sushi in the future. Um, other than that, I mean, I spend a lot of time, um, it, it kind of goes in cycles where I'll, I'll like to read a whole lot. And so I'll read a lot of books and, and, you know, this week I read, I think a whole book in, in two or three days. Um, some sometimes I'm into you know I'll binge watch a whole TV show on Netflix or something and just sit down and and over the course of a week watch twenty episodes of something. Um, I, I was I was on a a self learning kick for a while doing uh, learning French on Duolingo and, and taking a bunch of courses on Coursera um, on financial markets and um, uh, the history of evolution or I guess evolutionary biology. Um, and, and computer security and just a few different things that were like, hey, I don't know much about this. Let me learn more about this. I'm curious. Um, so it's sort of it's sort of just whatever I want to do. I mean, it's hard to define exactly what I'm going to do. You know, next week may be totally different than this week. Um, it, it's it's like, I guess it's like one of those things where you say, oh, I want to jump into this and, and, and do this, but oh, I have to go to work. I don't have time to do this right now. Well, now I can just say, no, it's cool. I'm just going to spend the next two days learning how to use Photoshop because mm-hmm. I want to do X, Y, Z on my on my blog, and I want to learn how to edit photos and 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 crop them, resize them, and, and format them, and and fix the you know fix defects on them, and and do some of these cool overlays and stuff like that. Like that was one thing I probably six months ago I did. Just sat down and went through a bunch of online video tutorials and learned how to use the software that I have uh, to edit photos. Actually, I used. GIMP, G-I-M-P, instead of uh, Photoshop. GIMP is free. Photoshop's expensive. Um, but those are the sort of things. I mean, nothing outside of vacations. I mean, it hasn't been like this huge, my life is totally different now. It's just, it's a whole lot. It's like seven-day weekends every week, pretty much. Um, so that's probably the, the the next few years until I get all three kids into school. Um, and then after that, I'm going to have a lot more free time. So I'm not sure what I'm going to do all day then, but probably a lot of the same. Um, pro- I mean, and we, you know, we, me and the two-year-old, we'll go out and, and do things during the day pretty often too. Um, so just just a little bit of this and that. I mean, it, it, it's we've been able to take longer vacations. I think we've spent close to four weeks on vacation this year, which is given the normal North American, or I should say, United States allotment of vacation time. Um, four weeks a year is pretty rare, um, and and most of that is just kid related. Um, between school and summer camp and other activities, it's hard to find time off to go on vacation. But um, we took a road trip to Canada for a few weeks, and then took a cruise for a little over a week to the Caribbean 
so more vacations are definitely um, more, more trips um, are, are in the cards for us as the kids get older and, and easier to, to take care of. Is there anything you feel restricted from that you're not able to do because you don't have the money to do? Is there is there something that I mean? Do you feel impoverished? Do you feel restricted? Not exactly. I mean, probably in terms of in terms of if we had more money, it would be nice. Uh, the only thing I can think of is just maybe like traveling to Europe, Western Europe. It's pretty expensive, so we probably won't spend a lot of time there particularly uh but you know there's that's like 10 countries in the world there's another 205 or six other countries out there we can visit so um there, there's lots of other things to do in the meantime uh but i mean in terms of material consumption no i can't i can't think of anything that we want or want to do that we don't do or don't have right now or that we could not afford easily yeah, so I don't I don't think it's really restrictive in any, and and there's always going to be that restriction on something. I mean, no matter you know, Bill Gates has limits on what he can buy. <laughs> you know, he, he can't buy a country. Well, maybe some small countries, but um, so I, I think no no matter you know whether you have a million or ten million dollars or a hundred million dollars, there's always limits on what you can consume, what you can afford. Um, I mean, so I I guess. I can't think of anything now that I would if I if I had an extra million dollars that I would go out and get. Um, yeah, it, it's two ideas for you. One is that if you want to go to Western Europe, uh, just can, I mean, and I'm sure you've already thought of this, just, but just for the audience, how I would handle that is rent the house out for three months. Find find somebody who wants a, you know a short term rental of some kind. Rent the house out for three months or, or six months or a year. Go and buy a camper van in Europe and then spend six months traveling around Western Europe. And by going slower, you can do it cheaper. The house can fund the additional cost and you turn that asset into that's, that's currently not creating revenue. You turn it into something that basically funds the premium of traveling around Western Europe instead of Eastern Europe. Uh, and then you sell the camper van when you're done in Europe and, and, and keep on going. Like there, there's, there's always a strategy to, that can be employed to hit financial goals, even if you are living on a, on a specific budget. Yeah, and that's that's exactly. I mean, we when we were trying to figure out what to do this past summer, we put we actually had um, southern Spain on the list of um, we had a few different places we wanted to go, and that was one of them. And yeah, it would have been basically fly to Europe and spend probably a month, maybe two months there, and possibly rent out the house while we're gone. Um, but but just to, to to travel more slowly, we probably would have rented a, an apartment somewhere instead of a camper van. But but sort of going more slowly, and by by doing that, spreading out some of those big costs like like airfare or, or train tickets to different places, right, spreading right. those out over time, and so that the you know the whole trip for for two months may have only cost double what it would cost for two weeks. Because um, so many of the costs are, are I mean. The, the like food, you know. I realized when we're not here, we're saving a thousand dollars a month. When we're not here at our house, we're saving a thousand dollars a month or so just on not paying utilities or not paying much for utilities. We're not consuming things as much, not paying for groceries, and so yeah, we're, we're going to spend more money if we were in in Europe, for example, on groceries. But we're not spending money here in the U.S. on groceries, so that's six hundred bucks or so that we'd be saving a month on that, plus some more on utilities and. And we're not driving around here. We'll be taking public transit over there, probably, or if we rent a car or something. 
So then, in the, yeah, like you're saying, and then we can rent out the house. That's another probably thousand dollars a month. We could we could grow, or we could net probably. Travel uh, is only expensive because people have to do it in a two or three week period of time. Because there's three major costs of travel. Number one is getting there, and especially if you're going to fly somewhere. I mean, if if flights to Europe are a thousand bucks a piece, that's five grand of getting you and your three kids there. Assuming your your two year old has has his or her own seat. So the cost of getting there and home. Number two is the cost of maintaining all of the lifestyle at home plus the cost of travel. So the way most people travel is you have a mortgage payment, you have a car insurance payment, you have a health insurance payment, you have all of these costs from home, and then you're adding travel costs to that. And then number three is the cost of what you're doing while you're there. So the way U.S. Americans go on vacation is we're so stressed out. We've got to do everything in two weeks. So you spend $80 on Monday to rent the jet skis. We spend $250 on Tuesday to get the entrance tickets to Disney. We spend $800 on Wednesday actually there at Disney or whatever the thing is. And we spend, 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 spend because we've got to get all the activities in because that's the other cost is that actually being on the road is not that expensive, especially if you rent an apartment or something like that. But all of those are constraints of working. If you don't have, if you have more than two weeks, then instead of instead of taking you know a five thousand dollar plane ticket cost, that's a total cost amortized over two weeks of twenty five hundred dollars. But amortized over fifteen weeks, that's three hundred and thirty three dollars a week for for traveling to get there and back. Then if you can uh, arrange your expenses at home either to not be there or to subsidize them with your get rid of your mortgage payment or you know take the insurance off the cars for three months. I mean every situation is different. You can cut those at-home costs. And then by having more time, you can go on the off-peak days. You can spread things out and you can live. And then the cost of travel just plummets. But all of it is a, is a cost of working. It's like it, the entire incentive system around life is you're screwed if you work because it's expensive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's you know, what you've just described. That's pretty much what we had planned for this summer. We were going to spend five weeks um, driving from North Carolina up to Canada and spend most of that time in Canada and then drive back. Um, and so you know, driving there is way cheaper than five plane tickets, right. even, even when the plane tickets are only 250 bucks each. Um, but we would have our car in the meantime, so we can drive between cities, take day trips wherever. Um, and we rented apartments. Um, but we, end, we ended up cutting the trip short after about two and a half weeks. We just we got really tired of um, just the – with kids, it's kind of hard. And so we, we, we knew that you know we may want to just cut it short and come back home anyway, and that's why we drove somewhere instead of flying. So right. it's, it's easily cancelable, and we could just head back home. So uh, we were just kind of worn out, travel-weary from, from um, being on the road so much and being away from home. But, um, but hopefully in a few years we can, maybe even this, summer, this next summer, we can, we can go and do a long trip somewhere. But I think, I think that's kind of those you know, three, four, five, six-week trips, eight-week trips – um, are probably going to be more typical uh, for us, just because, like you're saying, the, the the marginal cost to add on an extra month of vacation is not that much. I mean, and especially if you're saving money at home, right. it, it may be almost nothing. Uh, and in some parts of the world, you may actually save money. You know, because we, we we like to go to to Central America, Mexico again, or um, Thailand eventually, Southeast Asia. And a lot of those places, the cost of living, even a, a somewhat luxurious cost of living, is is no more than than our than our cost here in uh, North Carolina. Right. And so once you once you cover those the plane tickets, the big big expense there. So yeah, that's that's what we're you know we're looking forward to that we 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 don't have those constraints on time. 
um, and, and we can travel more slowly and we can, you know, we can travel off peak if we potentially, you know, depending on what we do with the kids schooling and everything. Um, we have that flexibility to, to go places when it's cheap and, and spread those big costs out over a longer period of time. Right. Let's wrap up with kids. You've got three kids and you're living on $33,000 a year with three kids in North Carolina. Do you have some ideas that have helped you and your wife to not need to spend a ton of money on the kids? Any tactics, techniques, tips that you would share with us? Um, let's see. Well, probably the biggest savings is I don't work, so there's no childcare expenses. Um, that saves us 12000 a year or more um, compared to the going rate for a, a daycare. Um, or, or for three kids, it could be twenty or thirty thousand dollars if you hired a a, a nanny um, or more. Mm-hmm. Um, we send our kids to public school, which we live in a a metropolitan area that has a pretty decent school system. Um, we actually both my wife and I both grew up here in the Wake County public school system. Went to school here, um, K through twelve, and it worked out pretty well for us. Um, so we, we our, our kids actually attend one of one of the worst schools in the district as measured by test scores and demographics and, uh, and poverty levels, but it's actually a pretty good school. Um, it, it sounds weird to say that, but there's, there's just not that many, um, bad schools here in, in Raleigh. Um, our kids are doing very well, um, on, on tests and performance wise. It does not seem to be adversely affecting them. It gives them a taste of, of how other people in the world, live um, outside of gated communities and protected enclaves that that most most wealthy people of my means would likely live in um so so it's sort of a a a, um, cultural immersion experience as much as as uh educational experience as well um so so we you know we live in a decent school district and the, the school is 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 pretty good the kids small class sizes that sort of thing um but you know if you look at it just without digging into what is it actually, but, but it's a decent school. Um, and middle school and high schools are, are good around here. Um, so public schooling, if, if you can get in an area where public schooling is, is good enough, not perfect, but you know, good enough, um, that's going to save you a lot of money as well. Um, so those are probably the biggest expenses, educational expenses, childcare, um, Cars, we I have a Honda Civic and we can fit five people in a Honda Civic. Um, when we had a booster seat and a car seat in there, it was a little bit tight. Four door or two door? It's a it's a four door. Two door. I would say I would say go for the four door. I don't know if it's extra money, but it's certainly worth it in terms of sanity. Absolutely. Um, so so you can you can fit five kids in a Honda Civic. Um, you don't have to have a an eight passenger SUV if you only have three kids. Although it would be nice sometimes to have more capacity. So our next our next car might be a nice uh, new used minivan or SUV, small SUV. Go with the minivan is awesome. And, you know, I, I I agree. My wife does not want to drive a minivan, but um, to me it just makes perfect sense that they're less expensive and it, it, it you can haul stuff in them it, it, you rent, rent an S- here's how you can convince your wife uh well it's hard to convince people but i'm saying rent an suv so my wife and i have a minivan we love it this weekend we're taking a trip and i have, I have my brother's honda pilot 
Uh, I'm a fan of Hondas. It's the worst car ever designed in the history of mankind uh, because we have one son and two dogs, and we can't fit in the Honda Pilot. Uh, it's just so the, – the, the design is so ridiculous uh, when you compare it to the design of the ease of, of fitting stuff in the minivan and having tons of room. Um, <laughs> sorry. I, I'm, that was a little bit strong of me to say, but it's just – you know, you compare an Odyssey versus a Pilot, and you yeah. figure they cost the same. They run the same, except one is actually easy to use and live in and the other is basically just looks stupid i mean it, it you know excuse me the one is easy to <laughs> i get all tongue-tied the one is easy to live with and it's really useful and it looks like a minivan and the other looks cool but is so difficult to actually use every day and has half the room inside that was that was what i meant to say i didn't mean to be so strong uh, hopefully i didn't offend your wife if she listens <laughs> <laughs> no that's that's okay we we'll have to have that that argument or discussion or fight or whatever it turns into uh, down the road. But um, no, I, I think that's, yeah, focusing on like how do you use it and, and what the practical implications are and is it actually, you know, the, the things that you actually care about more than like what does it look like or what what is the name of it. Um, I, to me, those are more important. So I'll keep working on her and, and, and see what we can come up with. But yeah, a lot of those things, I mean, it's I've gathered the same thing that minivans are more versatile in terms of hauling capacity, and you know I can probably fit a sheet of plywood in there if I needed to. Yeah, I had an I had a Ford Expedition, and and a and now I have a Hyundai Entourage, and I grew to hate the Expedition because it was just this massive vehicle that is designed to do it can only do a couple of things well. A, it can haul a, a trailer. And B, if it's four wheel drive, and if you need that, you can lift a, you know, you can put a lift on it and have some big off road vehicle. The only thing that the minivan can't do as well is uh, you're not going to lift it and make it into four wheel drive, which I don't have any use for, and you can't haul as heavy of a trailer. Right. But even some of the newer ones now, I mean, they're rated for thirty five hundred pounds, but people still have this mental. Um, image over them but in terms of practicality once you've had both of them <laughs> i know very few people who've had an suv who've driven and used a minivan who've ever wanted to go back unless you have the need to haul a trailer or you have the need for the off-road high high ground clearance capabilities of it right which which we we don't have either of those i mean i, I thought about getting a trailer just to maybe get some kayaks or canoes and be able to haul them a lot easier or bikes even or just general stuff you know um, and, and yeah, and like you're saying, you can you can even put a hitch on a Honda Civic. I mean, you can't carry much, but but that's that's a very simple way to turn something cheap like a Civic or a Ford Focus or something turn it into this awesome utility vehicle, being able to haul everything. Put a put a hitch on there and get a small utility trailer. I'm, so, I'm sorry for being so opinionated. I shouldn't have expressed my opinion that strong. It's just I was so glad to get rid of the expedition and get a minivan. <laughs> I want other people to avoid my mistakes. <laughs> I, I will. I will tell her. I'll, I'll make sure she listens to this part. And I'll say, "Look, here's another smart person that's figured it out." But, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, that's just one of those things of like, I, I don't know. I've never had this desire to to get an SUV. Um, not that I have anything against them. I mean, if they were right. if they were practical and, it, and it, for some reason I need a trail to haul a trailer, I mean, I'd go out and get a nice big V eight four wheel drive. So I, maybe if I want to go off road, I mean, yeah. If you live at the top of a mountain in North Carolina with a rutted dirt road, you need yeah. the ground clearance. That's different. But yeah, I live on a thirty six foot wide paved road that gets scraped from snow pretty often in the winter time. The 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 twice the two times per year that it snows here. 
uh, which I don't even need to go anywhere when it snows. I mean, school's canceled, but the grocery store, I can walk to it. I do walk to it. And I mean, I, I, I'll be fine if it snows. I don't have to drive anywhere. Um, and it's certainly not worth paying a premium for a more expensive car and, and then getting worse gas mileage uh, as a result, too. But um, yeah, so to jump back to kids, um, I'm, I'm trying to think of anything else. Um, I mean, food, obviously, you, you have five people. It doesn't cost 2.5 times the cost of feeding two people. Um, mm-hmm. And we, we don't go to Costco or Sam's Club. We just shop at regular grocery stores. Um, but, you know, you can buy stuff in bulk that, that, la- that that's cheaper per unit. Probably a bigger cost savings is actually using up all the ingredients so that, you know, if you buy a bag of apples or a bag of onions or potatoes, um, you actually use them all up instead of throwing half of them in the trash when they rot uh, because there's more mouths to feed. So it's, um, you know, people think, well, oh my gosh, ha- having three kids will cost 150% more than, than feeding just two people. But um, the reality is you, I think you're able to, to sort of use those groceries that you do buy more efficiently. And, and cooking for five really isn't that much more work than cooking for two. So your, your, um, your, your savings from cooking at home versus going to a restaurant are a whole lot more when you have five people to feed instead of two. Um, so, so those, I think those, I think, I think housing, um, I don't know how people do it in high cost of living areas where houses are a million bucks or more. Um, I mean, to, to buy a two or three bedroom house instead of a one bedroom or a studio, it's going to be a lot more expensive. Um, I guess I'd say look at that and evaluate, are you really making that much more money after taxes in these really high cost of living areas enough to justify uh, paying that much more for, for housing? Um, or is it, does it make sense to commute in from the suburbs or should you look at maybe relocating somewhere else? I mean, I know it's tough because you have family and friends there, but, um, but, but lots of people from here have moved to New York or Silicon Valley and then they come back after they realize, wow, it'd be really hard to raise a family there and manage to save any money. So, um, so we, we live in an area where housing is relatively cheap and the difference between a, a, uh, a two-bedroom house, if you can even buy those, versus a, a four-bedroom house, it's, it's not, you know, it's twenty to $30,000 maybe. Um, and then the, the other costs for a house aren't that much more. Um, clothes, obviously, uh, hand-me-downs are a big one. Um, we have lots of older cousins that have handed stuff down to our kids, and um, there, there are ways to get clothes for cheap, like thrift shops. Um, we... Yard sales, even yard sales, um, toys. Toys are they're so when you when when you're a kid now today in 2014, you're so lucky because there's so many toys out there. They're so cheap, and people want to get rid of them all the time. And you can get boxes of toys for free from from friends that want to clean their house up because they're just everywhere. Right. Um, so so and I went to the toy store the other day. We rarely very rarely go there, and I was like, holy crap! People pay hundreds of dollars for like train sets that. You can get on Craigslist for ten bucks, and and like wow, these re- these retail prices are insane because so much of the stuff you can get almost brand new for almost free from other places, um, secondhand. And, uh, and in reality, I mean, do you really want all those toys around your house? Probably not. Right. Um, other than that, I mean, that, that's probably the, the big areas where we've saved a lot of money on, on having kids. Um, extracurriculars. I mean, be reasonable about it. Um, 
some people say only one at a time, like don't do soccer and ballet and basketball and Girl Scouts or Boy Scouts. Don't 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 do all those four or five things. You're just going to drive yourself crazy and you're going to be out of the house every night of the week, which isn't. So then you don't just have the cost of tuition for these different or, or fees for these different things. You have you're not going to be able to do anything at home during the week. Your kids don't have time to, to, to play with their friends after school. And you're going to have to eat out every night, get takeout every night. You're not going to have time to, to sit down at home and have a meal. So um, we've kept ex- extracurriculars to um, zero or one things at a time um, so far. Um, so it's been a huge savings in terms of money, but also sanity. Right. Um, any other kid-related questions? I can't think of anything else that we've, we've done really well on with kids, but... Um, I think it's just an overall concerted effort on on all fronts for kids. It's interesting. Again, as with earlier, and this is not this is not meant as an insult, but it's really not that remarkable as far as how not to uh, to spend money. It's it's a couple of things uh, applied consistently. But what's remarkable is how wacky our society is that that. <laughs> that it's that what you've just described is not more normal. I look at it and I say I see the lifestyle. Even you mentioned the extracurriculars. My wife and I talk a lot about this. And if you look at it, most people don't recognize the cost that the that the all the activities cost you know cost them. And it's not necessarily the fees that are associated with the activity. It's the lifestyle cost. And if you have a softball game on Tuesday and Thursday and Friday night. Well, and if and if you and your spouse are working during the day, there's no chance you have time to make a meal because you don't have time to go grocery shopping. You don't have anything on hand that's convenient, so you have to eat out. And then you're so tired from being out Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday night that Saturday morning about all you want to desperate to do is to sleep in. So you can't handle anything yourself. You can't mow your own lawn. You can't fix an, you know you can't fix your own sink because you're just trying to recover. And so there's this massive lifestyle cost that comes because of the decision for allowing your schedule to be so full of those things. And it's up to each parent what, what they see value in, but just my, my job and our job to point out the financial impact of certain very small, seemingly minor decisions as compared to you know, making one, one decision versus another. And most people aren't tuned into that. Yeah, and it's, and it's really, I mean, it, it comes down to, to trade-offs and choices of, you know, if you're if you're busy most weeknights and every weekend doing um, whether it's martial arts or dance or cheerleading or gymnastics or organized sports, team sports, if you're always busy, I mean, you're missing out on all these other other aspects of life that just happen, like like hikes in the woods and you know free things at at the city parks and and uh, um, nature parks and. And just hanging out with friends and sleepovers and campfires and, and, and going camping for the weekend, uh, small vacations, you know, trips out of town, going to the zoo, all, all those those things that are free or almost free, very inexpensive, but but like hugely broadening your horizons um, on multiple dimensions instead of just this one single dimension of um, playing softball really well or being the best gymnast out there. Or, or something like that where, I mean, I don't want to say don't do it, obviously, because, you know, maybe your kid has a special talent for it and, and, and maybe they'll do really well. Um, and maybe that's like the thing that they love. But, um, you know, I, I look at it for us like, well, we're free most weekends. And so we can do a lot of different things. Um, 
and we can take the money that we save and and travel overseas without really worrying about money. And so our you know our, our kids are seeing different things and getting to experience different things uh, in, in the same sort of way. And so, but it really comes down to trade offs. I mean, I don't know if there's any one, one right way, one right way to do it. Um, I think just just be cognizant of it that, that it's 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 a, a time and money issue as much as it's not just it's not just the, the fees that you're paying, but it's that that impact on your lifestyle of um, constantly being busy. And I almost feel like there may be some long term like the impact on kids in general is just if you keep them busy, busy, busy all the time with these organized activities. They never develop that ability to entertain themselves and think about, you know, what do they enjoy doing in their in their downtime? And then so all of a sudden they grow up and they're they turn nineteen, eighteen or nineteen, they go off to college and they're like, Well, I have to be doing something right now all the time. I, I can't just I can't just sit and relax and listen to music or, you know, go to the library and pick up an interesting book and learn about something new or or um you know, just enjoy the downtime. I almost feel like it's we're we're as a society, and you can escape this, but as a society, we're breeding people with little attention spans that that aren't creative enough to go out and fill up their own times with with um, independent activities that are entertaining. Um, so, so that's another sort of aspect to it that that I've thought about. Um, but yeah, that's. So, so, so kids are kids are interesting and and can be really expensive or can be not very expensive at all, depending on how on the choices you make. Yeah, I'll um, I'll respond to that and then I'll give you a chance to have the last word and share anything else as we wrap up here. But I have <laughs> I have much strong I have similar opinions to you, except much stronger. And these are purely my opinions. No one has to agree with me. But I think my personal opinion at this point is that I think that the cycle of school and sports is one of the most destructive cycles in kids' lives. Because first, I don't equate school with education in any manner. And I I personally have an opinion that school teaches very poor... School is probably a negative impact more than it is a positive impact for many reasons associated with actually what you do in school and what you're required to do in school. And the primary purpose of school is not to educate it's to create units of production that can be easily slid into a factory work system and so that's why everything is standardized every you know the idea is that everything is standardized and that's a pretty strong that's a pretty strong uh, opinion and i don't expect many people to agree with it but if you just look at the sheer amount of hours in a work in a week you know let's say you know a, a young person has what 168 hours a week you know, you got to sleep. So let's say you're sleeping, uh, uh, what would it be, eight hours a night. So uh, that would be 56 hours a week. Uh, so seven days a week. Let's say that then you're in school. And what? how much are you in school? You're in school, what, 30 hours a week? And then going there, getting home, spending time in homework. So let's just say that comes out to 40 or 50 hours a week, going to school, coming from school. Now, if you add in all of the side time and you add in sports and especially to do well in something like those extracurricular activities, if you have football practice every day after school and you have games every week and then you need to be spending time conditioning, doing certain things, you're limited. All of your time is limited to school and preparation for sports. You can't work. 
You can't explore hobbies. You can't explore personal interests. And you basically come out with one thing only. You come out with a diploma and you come out with a skill in a sport. And when you get out of school, that puts you so far behind in life. You don't know who you are. You don't know what you like. You don't know what your interests are. You don't know what your passions would be. You don't know how to connect those things. And instead of having a broad range of skills that you can actually apply in different ways, you are a mega specialist in something that that has little possibility of resulting in either lifestyle happiness or financial happiness. And the long shot at professional sports, if that's the goal, fine, go for it. But even that doesn't, I mean, that seems like one of the worst professions of the world to me. Uh, again, that's a very minority opinion. But it's just, I think it's, it's destructive. And the, the, the viewpoint that I've had on it is I sit and do financial planning with people who were excellent high school athletes and excellent uh, students. But you come out and their skills are so one-dimensional that they're lost. And you're sitting there, they're sitting there crying in my office saying, I've got all this I owe all this money. I've got this lifestyle locked in, and I don't have the ability to think laterally. And I was fortunate to never be involved, with the exception of one year playing basketball. I was fortunate to never be involved in sports. And I was able to spend a lot of that time learning about things I was interested in. And my primary point with school is that you can't actually spend time learning about things that you're interested in school. So you have to do that outside of school. Well, if all of your time is sucked up by extracurricular activities, you never have time to learn things you're interested in. So you wind up with your only interest is sports. And so then that sets you up where after school, uh, all you have time to do is sit around and watch watch football and memorize statistics. And these are very difficult skills to have, you know, to build a quality life around. Some people can do it and they can make a, a career off of it. But it just seems when, when you look at it at the whole, when you look at how much time in that, that one precious period of our life where we should have the time to explore things and to learn and to enjoy that learning process and broaden our horizons, then if all of that time is sucked up from the age of four to 18 and it's filled for us, we never have the opportunity to, to, to develop ourselves as an independent, unique person who is an individual. We're, we're stuck into the mold that everyone else wants us to be stuck in. So it's a pretty strong statement, and I, and I recognize that it's, if most people, it would, it would make them really upset. But I look at the backside of it and sitting, having people sitting in my office, and I say, didn't you ever have any time in the summer to go and work or to go and try some different hobbies? No, I had to do my sports camp and I had to go and learn how to run a faster 40-yard dash and now I've got a knee injury and you know what what did I learn? I learned teamwork. Well, come on, you can learn teamwork doing anything. So um, feel free to respond, disagree, but uh, you know, I, I agree with you, and I, I take it a little farther, but I think very few people ever think about the long-term effect of that. And uh, to be clear, uh, as I shut up, but to be clear, th I think there can be a very valuable way to use anything, to use sports as, uh, you know, for a specific child's needs. So if, you're, if you notice that your son or daughter has a certain need in their character, in their personality that's not being addressed, you may use sports as the way to address that. Uh, and it can be an excellent solution for something, but just on a general basis, I think it does more harm than good. Yeah, that's, that's a, a pretty radical take, but um, I, I think... I'm I, pretty I, hardcore, don't worry. <laughs> I don't expect you to agree. <laughs> no, I, I think I generally agree with that. Um, I, I'm not sure if I'm I'm as hardcore in my opinions as you, but I, I've 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 sort of seen the exact same thing. Uh, just growing up, coming of age, and, and looking around at other people, where it yeah, it's almost like people 
become these unidimensional beings as adults where and and you wonder like what what else defines you you know like i know where i've worked different a few different places and and that was i remember there was one night i was stuck at a christmas party at a table with a few other people couples um and it was there was it was an engineering firm so it was all all guys that worked there pretty much but you know, it was the guys that were talking and 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 i was there for like an hour or two and i swear all they talked about were baseball statistics the entire time and and i was like that part of my brain doesn't exist i don't have i don't have that mental capacity to store just like data on on who struck out who and batting averages and when they played for different teams and i'm like I just I don't see the usefulness of it. I mean, I guess if you get entertainment value or it somehow, you know, maybe it makes their life more relevant somehow. But I, I just that part of it, I'm just I don't understand. But but I guess it's because they grew up and that was all they ever really dove into was like that little part of of um, sports, and that's all that that their life after school, I guess, revolved around batting practice and and yeah running the 40 yard dash and getting better and going to baseball camp and going to baseball games and then professional games and and uh i i don't i mean yeah i'm just glad i never really i guess i wasn't really raised in a a big sports family and it was just sort of um and but that's all you ever talk about is, is sports and i'm like do you guys ever like watch any like science documentaries or like read books about anything science fiction or do you ever go hiking in the woods or take your kids out and do that kind of stuff or like you ever look at like finances or you know other cultures overseas or anthropology or sociology or you know and, and it's it's like i'm a freaking alien if i bring up anything besides that it, it but besides sports um but but you know we get to choose who we associate with as adults and so I think that that's probably I don't know that I really count any hardcore sports fans among my friends. Um not not that I'm real close with. Um or at least we aren't talking about sports. I guess people know that I'm not a big sports fan, so they don't right. they don't talk about sports with me because I'm I mean I, I know what a football is and I can throw one, but I'm not very good at it and and certainly don't know I, I probably couldn't name more than two or three players that are playing in the NFL today. Um and mostly because they went to my my uh, college um, but yeah, and, and to jump back to, to school, um, I, I think I might disagree with you a little bit about school and, and how valuable it is. Um, I, I, I get what you're saying. I mean, about it being sort of an assembly line of, of, of instruction and learning. Um, but, but I guess I see the, the, the other parts of it too, of, of the recreation and the creativity parts of it where it, it you know, even in elementary school, that they they have science and social studies, and and my kids go to an engineering school, an engineering magnet school, and so that they have you know some more STEM related, uh, science related, engineering related activities they do there. Um, that they, they get mathematics and exposure and reading, um, writing, um, and and then there's the 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 music, um, drama, art. And then there is physical education, so they—they, they, I think they get a good broad mix of exposure to a lot of different things there. That you could, you know, you can you can recreate that through homeschool. Um, I guess I'm just kind of lazy, and and I look at school as, 
I look at school as a supplement to a good, well-rounded education and not as a, not as like, you know, what happens between 8.30 a.m. and 3 p.m. That's not it. I mean, it's, it's after school and it's on weekends and it's, it's walking to school and looking at different creatures and explaining how, you know, these animals work and, and, and talking about, um, finances or the economy or religion or, um, history or whatever, you know, if something comes up, being able to learn more about it. Um, and, and so we, we encourage our kids to read, read books outside of what they have to read for school. Um, we, you know, we, they're not reading a whole lot. They're in third and fourth grade, the, the older kids, but, um, but we really encourage them to read, read books, fiction and nonfiction and, and sort of expose them to different mixes of, of, interests out there um and and yeah and, and i mean we, we both i think we both agree about this that if you if you fill up all their time with one particular activity plus school uh there's there's just virtually no time left to really learn what you like to do in your free time and and what you know what interests you and to sort of follow that and pursue that that interest that may lead nowhere or may lead to boredom eventually and you may pick up something new but um, somehow I, I feel like having more free time almost sound like a hippie or something saying like, well, we need more, you know, we need, we need to just sit around and just have tons of free time to just chill out and relax. But, but I think there, I think there's some validity to that just to be able to, um, figure out what you like doing that entertains you at an earlier age, because there's just seems like so many adults that are just like hollow shells that, that they can, you know, they can talk the talk in terms of sports and reality TV shows, and maybe they're really good at their career. But, but a lot of times, that's kind of the extent of it for for um, a lot of people I've worked with. And maybe, I mean, maybe they're leading fulfilling lives. I don't know, um, but yeah. So, right. so anyway, I've been trying, and uh, I'm actually. I'm not going to spend much time on the school thing because I'm trying to be very careful not to turn this into the radical education podcast. I, <laughs> I've I've actually done a, a good bit because I'm in the middle of recording an education series on how to pay for college, and what I decided to do is to start at the beginning with avoiding, you know, because what as with most things, with I mean, you're an engineer, you have to go back to the very beginning and understand what you want to accomplish, and then once you figure that out, you can figure out the most intelligent way to it. So I'm trying to be very careful not to turn this into just a school education podcast. Uh, but it is a subject of great interest to me. I'm going to take the risk of bringing on uh, one person next week. I'm going to be doing an interview with uh, a man named Brett who hosts the School Sucks podcast because as I have learned more, the reason and the reason I'm spending so much time on it is because with financial planning, it's incredibly important. And the cost associated with school for us as individuals, for us, for ourselves, and also with our children is a major, major um, cost. And it's a major factor in financial planning. And so that's why I'm running the risk of, of bringing it into the financial discussion in the same way that you, that we, that taking a, a three week vacation, because you have to fit into your child's school, school setting, uh, doesn't, you know, has a much higher cost than taking a, a six month vacation with your with your child. It's it. I see it applied throughout life. So it's. I'm pretty hardcore on it simply because I've spent a lot of time reading, and when I've spent the time reading, 
I, I found stuff I never knew about, and it helped me to solve certain things with my financial planning clients that I never could figure out. And you know, you made the comment about kind of empty shells, and uh, I, I've learned it with a with a hatred of learning and a and a just a dis, and a and a feeling as though people can't grasp simple financial concepts. That's how most people feel when they're working with a financial planner is they're they're fearful of financial concepts because it takes them back to school, and. So I'm gonna cut. I'm gonna, I'm gonna stop there to not go on and on. But I think that a lot of those things we need to understand the reasons, and it has helped me to understand my history and my path uh, as I try as we try to figure out what what's going forward. But I mean, the, the, but the point is though, we need you. You cannot become financially independent if you're not well educated. You have to be well educated uh, because if you're not well educated, you're going to lose your money and you're not going to be financially independent anymore. You're going to be taken advantage of. So we need to have excellent educations. We need to excellent educate our children in an excellent manner. And then more importantly, we need great teachers. So that's why the, the conversation is so so um, difficult is there's a difference between school and education yeah. and there's a difference between teachers and school. And so I'm running the risk of, of spending too much time on it just because I believe it's so important from a financial planning context. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I mean, I, I guess I'm fortunate to either have the gift for understanding relatively complex financial models and, and interactions between different systems, parts right. of your own personal finance systems, and being able to model that through spreadsheets. Um, it, but, but I mean, it's it's all stuff that I've learned either self-taught or, or in school or just from exploring it on my own or you know sitting down and doing the actual work to develop a a financial model like like what will i have in 20 years i mean right. that the, and, and some of those are just the, the skills or the 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 patterns of thinking that you learn um maybe not in k-12 through education but but in, in engineering school um or, or in, in in i'm assuming you have a finance background i mean in in, in finance classes uh a lot of it's that same of of Thinking about something and figuring out how you would solve it and what what the knowns are, what the unknowns are, and then how do you determine those unknowns or can you assume them away? And, and but but you know there's that there's that you got to have that basic understanding of of how all these systems work, uh, this science, biology, chemistry, physics. I mean, some basic understanding, um, understanding of of how interest works, compound interest, how finances work, um, discount rates. Um, right. You know, a legal system, understanding the legal and political system. I mean, but really all that stuff is, I mean, it's, it's, it's taught in high school. At least, I mean, in my experience, all that stuff, those are high school subjects. And so theoretically, you know, by the time someone's 18, they would have all that core knowledge. Um, but I, I don't think that's necessarily true in practice. I think there are maybe the majority of kids fall through the cracks somewhere in there. Maybe a large majority. I, I don't I don't really know. I mean, uh I, it, it, I think I went to a pretty advanced high school, so I'm not sure right. if my peers were a good example of, of of the common you know common knowledge. I'm always like, I'll be like, oh, that's common knowledge, and someone will say, no, that's that's not common knowledge. But right, uh, usually it's either we've. I would just say, I would submit to you if you want to know what the result is, look at the average. Look at the if you want to know what the result of the government education system is, look at the average citizenry around us. And yeah. how well they're doing with money. And if you want to know how well the, the the average citizen is doing with money, just look at the government because the government is a reflection of the average citizen. And that would be kind of my my way to say here's what is happening. That doesn't mean, however, and what I've usually experienced is that there's often a great teacher 
that takes an interest and spends some time ignoring what's on in Florida. We have the FCATs. I don't know if that's a Florida thing or a federal thing. I don't remember if F stands for federal or, or F stands for Florida. But, you know, instead of – it, usually you have a great teacher, and I had some wonderful teachers in my life who ignored the official curriculum what they needed to do to pass the test that was required to get their school an A rating and spent time teaching life skills, things that were actually useful, uh, and or you had an unusual school. And there are some unusual schools that do some different things. And that and those things usually um, serve people well. And so my encouragement is for all of us, uh, I mean, I, I, I like to be involved with Junior Achievement. And the thing I love about Junior Achievement is I get to go in and work with uh, in doing that, I haven't been able to do it for a few years with the time that I've been able, but I get to go in and work with students. And because I'm not tied to any of the uh, of the results that the uh, teachers are responsible for, their standardized test scores, I can talk about what I think really matters. And I mean, sometime I'll share some experiences, but I, I've had some amazing stories from students just because just from what is it 10 weeks or eight weeks or whatever of going in for an hour and sharing some life skills and um it's so gratifying so teachers encourage your students and and take the risk of teaching some of these things that are actually practical uh, and then we'll figure out as a culture how to fix the school thing little by little justin thank you so much for coming on i appreciate you're making the time um I really do. I think your story can serve as inspiration and education for many, many people, and I appreciate your doing it. Uh, thanks a lot for the opportunity, Joshua. I appreciate it. Um, it's been fun. Um, hope hope anybody has any questions about what I'm talking about. Shoot me a shoot me an email, or I'm on Twitter and Facebook. And your website uh, is rootofgood.com, and then on Twitter you are at uh, at root of good. Is that it? I think it's at root of good blog. Okay, at root of good blog, and then you're on Facebook at root of uh, uh, root of it's, good. You can just search root of good. Yeah, it comes. What's up. the root of good thing? Uh, what does that come from? Well, um, well, I was when I was brainstorming blog names, I was trying to think of something creative, and so you know the saying, "Money is the root of all evil." Ah, so, so I'm basically saying the exact opposite. Money is the the root of all good. By the way, scripture doesn't say money is the root of all evil. It says the love of money is the root yeah. of all evil. <laughs> yeah, it's that. Yeah, that, it's sort of. Yeah, there's sort of that perception that people think it's the money is the root of all evil, but it is. It is that. Right. There's so many. There's so much tension in our society surrounding uh, spiritual and religious concepts. I like to at least make sure that the scriptures are quoted accurately. Yeah, um, and it's and for me, it's it's. Is it good or evil? I mean, really, it's it's useful. It's not. I mean, everyone's pursuing it. Let's not let's not be coy about what everyone's trying to do out there. I mean, they're trying to get more money. People like money because it's useful. You get to buy things with it. It, it makes it so you're not starving. You're not dying on the street. You have a, a warm house to live in in the winter time. Right. Um, it's it's useful. I mean, it's it's good. It provides Absolutely. things that you need. Um, there's, there's you know there's there's no point to to try to pretend that somehow money is evil or it's bad or it it corrupts people. I mean. People are corrupted probably because they're just corrupt, not because they're not because they're after money. I mean, they, even without money, they would be corrupt. But um, but yeah, that's so. Anyway, rootofgood.com, um, sort of a sort of poking fun at the old saying, "Money is the root of all evil." It's 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 not. It's it's the root of good. I like it. I like it. Very good, Justin. Thanks again. All right. Thanks a lot. 
I told you it would be accessible, right? Justin uh, sounds like a, just a great guy. I've never met him, but other than that that interview, but uh, sounds like a, a really great guy. I want to make two quick comments on a couple of things that he mentioned, and I want to emphasize them for you, and then we'll play the music, and we will be out of here for today. Number one is do not miss. Make sure you notice that Justin in many ways hasn't done that much different than many others of us can do. So make sure that you notice that. He just made a couple of small decisions differently. And a lot of times, I mean, this show is called the Radical Personal Finance Podcast, but a lot of times we think we've got to get so hardcore. And I like to, hardcore is cool. I'm a pretty hardcore guy. But you don't have to. You can go to college. You can go to law school and and borrow money for that. You can buy a brand new car on uh, on a with with payments. That's fine. And you can buy a house and get a mortgage on it. That's fine. None of those things matter. Like I mean, it does matter. And can you get better results faster? Probably yes. But you can do all of those things. But you can't do all of those things again and again and again and again and again and expect to get rich. So no matter where you are. Recognize that. Hopefully, just just recognize that. I think that'll make a big difference for many, many people. And then number two, no matter where you are today, recognize that you can pretty quickly change things. I mean, Justin and his wife's story is pretty neat just because it's a pretty normal story. But here they are at 33. I mean, that's a 10-year, I'd say probably a 10-year financial independence plan. And you can you can do that. Just make some careful decisions on taxes. Make some careful decisions on housing. Uh, make some careful decisions on cars. Improve your incomes and be generally careful. And you can make some some dramatic improvements. So I hope that uh, hope that's helpful to you. That's it for today's show. I'm going to read a couple of reviews, and I want to thank you for those of you who have been leaving reviews. By the way, these reviews really help the ratings of the show. Also, your subscription may, helps the ratings of the show. So, if you are, enjoyed today's content, make sure that you uh, make sure that you uh, subscribe to the show. But the key thing about the reviews is, I'll tell you, they make they warm, make my day. So, even if you don't care about the ratings and all that nonsense, and frankly, I don't care that I care a little bit. But I care more about those of you who are listening every day and how I can serve you more and more every day. But I'll tell you, the most heartwarming thing is I got a little note. I have a little notification on my phone that when you leave a review, it makes my phone buzz and gives me a notification, and I go read that review, and that just makes my day. So. <laughs> forget about the external systems and all of that nonsense if you want to make my day i'd love your review on the show uh, on itunes or on stitcher that would just make that would really help me to feel great and so if you haven't left a review and if you've listened to today's episode i would really appreciate it and let's just go with the most recent one right from this morning by harsh alexander it says Glad a friend told me about this. I have an interest in early retirement, and a friend told me he was a fan of this show. I'm so glad I gave it a try. This is one of the best personal finance podcasts on the air. Great job, Josh, and keep up the great work. Thank you. That made my morning this morning. Uh, I woke up about 6 a.m., and it was sitting there on my phone, and I, I really was uh, really thanked him. Thank you for that. Um, that was a five-star review. Let's do one more. An absolute must-listen by Danny with a U.S. review. I've tried out 15 to 20 financial podcasts over the past year or so. Some I've stuck with. Some I couldn't unsubscribe from quickly enough. Radical Personal Finance is the only one that I've become a stark, raving lunatic about listening to, however. 
Radical Personal Finance is the only podcast I've ever found that feels like sitting down with a friend and having a chat. And I found myself engrossed in topics that were previously uninteresting to me just because of the interesting slant that Joshua took on them. For example, the How to Become a Millionaire on a Walmart was the best piece I've ever listened on a Walmart salary was the, without question the best piece I've ever listened to on income disparity and upward mobility. I'd give this show 10 stars if I could. Danny, that made my day. I've run out of music. Have a great weekend, everybody. Thank you for listening.